Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Web Behind. Uh, today with me I have Adrian Betridge-Wiese from Two Wave. Hey Adrian. Howdy. Uh, thanks so much for being on with me. I'm glad to be here, thank you for having me. Oh uh, yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, maybe we could start off a little bit just talking about what you're currently up to, what kind of stuff you work on, and what you do for your job. Sure, so I am the Chief Operations Officer of Two Wave. We're a software consulting firm based in Champaign, Illinois, which is basically the center of the state, um, which people from Chicago would call Southern Illinois, but really it's about dead center. It's uh, home of the University of Illinois, and uh, it's actually a pretty big tech hub. We have uh, like Yahoo here, John Deere, which is not exciting to some people, but actually is a giant tech company, um, as well as Wolfram Research, if you're familiar with Mathematica. Um, so it's pretty thriving. I mean, we're home, home of the NCSA National Center for Supercomputing Applications. Um, and then they've got the Blue Waters Petascale Supercomputer here. So it's, it's a pretty neat tech town. Awesome. Um, and so we're not a very big consulting firm. And uh, my, so my role of Chief Operations Officer is expansive. Uh, so I do boring stuff like pay the bills. Um, I do fun stuff like write proposals, so I'm, I'm basically our sort of chief chief proposal writer. Uh, and then I accidentally became kind of our front end guy too. So when we have front end development that that needs done, I usually do it. I don't do the design. Um, we have a separate designer that we work with, but the actual implementation is I've sort of, like I said, accidentally ended up being the guy that does that. Um, and so, yeah, it's a pretty neat gig, given that I get to do a bit of everything. Um, and we're a pretty widely distributed company, too. So a lot of days, I just work from home. Um, we've got employees in Jamaica and Argentina. We've got a guy in Cleveland. Um, and then the sort of central Illinois component is myself, uh, one developer who lives about 20 minutes away. And then actually, my father, uh, who owns the company, is our, our president. Awesome. Cool, cool. So what kind of stuff do you work on? Like what kind of job well, do you take? Yeah, so our big our big thing is real-time web. Um, and we basically we use the Meteor framework, um, which if you're familiar with it, it's a pretty awesome framework for real-time web. Um, and it happens to be a really, in our minds at least, like one of the easiest ways to get started with uh, ECMA 2015 or whatever they're calling it this week because mm. um, it, it it comes with uh, Babel built in and they've just got a really great framework for that so that's really nice to work with but um, again the real time the real timiness I guess of I should say is sort of the thing that drew us to it and we've been working with it for a long time since like Meteor 0.5 or something um, and right now our big client is using Meteor to develop a uh, enterprise-scale Internet of Things platform, which I haven't been able to talk about for years, but finally can. Um, and it's really actually super cool. It's they Our client makes these little hardware gateways that they've got uh, wireless, uh, usually like cellular internet or Wi-Fi, wi Ethernet cards in them for connectivity. And then they've got Z-Wave or Zigbee or other uh, device control chips in them. And then they've built... Um, with a, a good friend of ours, John Fairweather, who is a like a literal rocket scientist, um, built a custom con programming language to control these devices, which allows for cross-platform and cross-protocol control. And then we built uh, this real-time web interface, so you can control and script your devices. You can watch them behave in real time, and uh, it's I mean it's lightning fast from time that a device changes to time that you see it change in your browser is. I mean, it's not instantaneous, but it is way faster than you'd expect the internet to be able to behave. Um, so that's been our big thing. Uh, we also do, you know, we're consulting contractors, so whoever wants to pay us, we'll do it, right? So we have some really fun stuff that we've done with the Illinois Department of Natural Resources um, around educational sites. So we built a, a really cool interactive educational site uh, about white-tailed deer, which are... Um, depending on who you talk to, either a massive nuisance or uh, less of a nuisance, but still a nuisance. They're just, you know, it's the sort of arch archetypical central Illinois problem. But uh, deer is actually a big deal here. And so we built them a site. It's an educational website, and it's got a whole back end that they build with actually Adobe Dreamweaver rather than having to cook them a, a WYSIWYG editor. Um, so they use Dreamweaver and Upload, and the, the application, it's actually a Meteor application as well, um, just parses the file tree and build a website out using the directory structure. Um, 
Yeah, and we've done some other fun stuff. We've worked with the Public Art League here in town to build a interactive location-aware uh, application for their outdoor sculptures. So somebody can pull up the app on their phone and see the nearest sculpture, go to it, give their impressions of it, and it sort of builds into a whole crowd thing. Um, we've built and we've built a lot of stuff. We have a uh, a pretty cool cybersecurity product that we worked on for a while uh, with a company called Mach One Development, which is like a Windows kernel application as well as a whole web interface. So it tracks everything that happens to a document throughout its entire lifespan in a system. Um, we basically do a little bit of everything. Any 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 technology that needs to be built, we can do it. We've got a pretty wide range of skills on our team, um, which is fun for us, right? So you know, we're not we're not just a meteor shop. We're not just a WordPress shop, for example. Um, generally, when we get a project come in, somebody on our team will be an expert, or at least pretty close to an expert on it, and we'll have them go off and build it. Um, so it's a really fun. Uh, sorry, I just got attacked by a cat. Um, <laughs> There we go. So it's a really fun life, actually, for all of us to get to sort of build these things. And while, like, our Internet of Things application, now we've been working with the company for years, a lot of these things are, you know, six six to eight month projects that we do with them. Um, so we get to do a lot of cool things, and we get to tend to cycle through a lot. Awesome. Yeah, that's really great. Um, so how long, coming a little bit back in time, how long have you been doing programming tech stuff? Um... Well, in an official capacity, it's sort of a hard question to answer. So I grew up, I mean, I grew up in a pretty geeky household, right? So my father has been a, uh, actually, he started as a home builder um, when I was younger. And he, um, I got to rewind there. So when he was really young, he worked on Play-Doh, which was one of the sort of first really networked computer instances. Um, and so he was, a, he was programming on Play-Doh when he was a teenager. Um, then he built houses for a while. He got really big into... Um, sort of smart homes back in the 90s. So back before smart homes were really taking off. Smart homes. Well, I, it's sort of amazing how smart they actually were. Um, but it was a lot of stuff with like clever wires running to big control boxes so that you could point, you know, your remote at an outlet and it would it would route the IR signal all the way back to your controller, right? That sort of thing. Um, he got out of the housing market, the housing building market when it sort of uh, collapsed in the 90s. <laughs> And he uh, sort of got into programming. And, and so he was a programmer. He's always been a programmer, but he became a professional programmer then. Um, so I grew up around it, um, but I was a pretty rebellious kid. So I did my very best not to learn anything about programming, um, which didn't work as well as I thought. But um, so I actually, um, I was a musician. And so I studied music uh, in undergrad. And so uh, I guess we'll rewind it, all the things that I've not been good at before I got to this job. But um, really, I didn't do much tech work until my last job, um, which was at an academic publishing company. And they have a piece of educational software that they were building. Uh, and I was sort of in charge of customer support for that among my many duties there. Um, and that included a lot of sort of working with the engineers, filing bugs, um, that sort of thing. I've always been sort of, I've had um, sort of tangential work that I've done for myself, uh, internet-wise, uh, generally uh, for my role-playing game campaigns. Um, so that's really how I learned to build websites, was just working on my sort of whatever game we were playing. I'd build them a website. Uh, and every time I wanted to do something, I would have to find somebody who could tell me how to do it. And I so built, actually, a pretty, pretty good set of skills just doing that before I was even officially working in tech. So was that your kind of first foray in the any kind of? I mean, it sounds like you had like some programming experience, right, from your dad. Was that your like first taste of programming? Was stuff he was doing? Yeah. So I don't even know if that qualifies as a taste. That was me looking at it and doing my very best not to learn what it was. Uh -huh. um, I was not a good kid, honestly. But so yeah, my first real foray into actual programming um, was just was building websites for myself and my friends. Mm. How long ago did you start that? Like, when was the kind of maybe your first one or first couple? Um, well, my first one was probably in high school, um, and it was bad. Uh, right? I I'm glad that I can't find it. Um, <laughs> but it was really uh, sort of like mid undergrad, or maybe late undergrad, that I started getting more involved in just like building these cool things for my own entertainment. 
Um, and so that was how old am I now? That was probably like that was probably like 2008, 2007, 2008. Um, that I did like low tech, just you know HTML and CSS and some JavaScript that I riffed off of people for click effects or something, right? Right. Um, and then it was uh, tw 2014 or so that I started getting ambitious enough to build bigger things. Uh, and then I just happened to be pretty good at wrapping my head around that stuff. And so um, I ended up taking over that role at Two Wave uh, and then just keep learning more. You know, every time you learn more, you realize how bad you are at everything. But um, the websites we make work, and I try not to spend too much time off the clock fixing my embarrassing stuff, you know, a year later. But um, that's that's essentially it. I'm a, almost entirely self-taught um, in terms of, like, I've never taken a single class on any of that. Um, I've had some great teachers just because I've had access to really good engineers um, first in my last job who I could just, you know, sort of learn about technology from them. Um, and then also I've had access to my dad once I was mature enough to listen to him. Um, and then the engineers that I work with now who are really good at helping me figure out like when I'm being really dumb. Um, but I've also got a really nice network, extended network of tech people that I've built here in town. And many of my friends from uh, just growing up happen to work in tech now. So I can say like, hey, uh, have you ever run into this issue or something? Um, but that's basically how I got into tech was teaching myself. Cool. So what, your first time doing these websites, you know, kind of back in, what did you say, like 2008, something like that? Just the HTML, CSS websites? Yeah, something um, like that. What was it? What was landscape like as far as you teaching yourself? Uh, do you remember like what tools you were using or what sites were you know big for you back then? Uh, wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, I used uh, text edit, right? So I've been a Mac guy for a while. Like I used, I mean, I built my sites in text edit for a long time, and then Notepad plus plus or something. There's no TextMate. TextMate was TextMate, what I graduated yep, to from nice. text edit to TextMate. Um, and boy, syntax highlighting it blew my mind. Um, I don't use TextMate anymore. But so, I mean, that was basically the tool. Um, and then, you know, trying furiously to Google for my answers and, well, st Stack Overflow slash Stack Exchange or whatever it is these days um, wasn't nearly as big back then. But, you know, there were still lots of resources for people um, just trying to figure out how things worked. Um, yeah. Though, you know, a ton of it was just way over my head at the time. I just was like, okay. Sure, I'll just copy and paste this bit. I, yep, right. I definitely remember going through that period of like not being able to understand the blog post, but grabbing the code out of the bottom and hoping it worked for whatever it was that I was working on. Yeah, no, that's that is absolutely what sort of my formative experience was like. Was just well, okay, let's hope for the best, um, and the best did not come true a lot, and that's you know how I ended up having to learn the stuff. It's like yeah, totally. So, okay, cool. So you did that, um, which is pretty awesome. And then, so now this, you're kind of like next time back into tech. Um, was it was it starting at Two Wave? Was that like your first time doing it? Or was it a little bit before then? Um, and actually working in tech, uh, in terms of building things, Two Wave is really my first time. Um, my last job, I worked at an academic publishing company, like I said, and they had this educational software project where while I wasn't actually working on the software, um, I was working with the software team, um, and I had some really great sort of uh, tech mentors there uh, who were good at helping me uh, basically like become comfortable with tech, right? So like there's this there's a sort of like inscrutable oh crap feeling to it where you don't really know what you're doing and it's kind of embarrassing to ask, right? Like okay, you're in this room with a bunch of engineers, uh, but like they're talking and you're just sitting there like, okay, eventually I'm going to get this. But um, the systems administrator especially, this guy's name is Paul Ross. Uh, he was actually an incredible mentor for me because he was really good at noticing when I was just completely clueless and filling me in later. Uh -huh. right? So like, he'd be like, okay, so here's the stuff that you didn't understand, right? And... Uh, so that that was tremendously helpful to me to have a really supporting environment to just sort of teach me the principles. You know, like that was the first time I was really exposed to agile development. Right, so they had a really regimented Scrum process, um, and I happened to sit next to the engineers. Oh, sorry about that. Mm -hmm. 
um, I happened to sit next to the engineers uh, at that job. And so, you know, like the first couple of weeks I'm sitting there like, why are they all standing up? Um, but, you know, they taught me about Scrum. Um, they taught me Jira and really like good bug documentation process. Um, and then I was involved in prioritization um, pretty quickly and just like, okay, well, here's the stuff that's driving your users crazy, right? Like, let's get these stories up to the top. And so, I mean, this is where I learned about stories and epics and spikes. Um, and so while I wasn't actually building this stuff, um, that's where I got a lot of my developmental framework from, was just having a bunch of really good, friendly tech mentors. Cool, yeah, that's, that's actually kind of, yeah, it's interesting. I think that's kind of like a unique approach with people that I've uh, interviewed for this so far, is like kind of cool coming from the, like more like even QA product side uh, and then coming in that way. Like you, it's like you had a good grasp of Agile and Jira before you were really writing a lot of code. It was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, for me, it's probably what I needed um, because, well, I mean, I can, you know, bash my head against code all I want. Um, the sort of the structure and the familiarity um, and the comfort that that brought was really good for me. So like personally, I have a really hard time when I don't understand something. Like it gets, it's really frustrating for me and that can be a, sort of a blocker for myself, just like and actually learning something. And so having an environment where everybody was totally fine with me not knowing what was going on, right? Like that was okay. Like, yeah, you're not a tech guy. You're doing this software stuff. Here's how it works. We're gonna help you, right? We're not gonna be mad at you if you don't get it. We'll be happy to explain it for the thousandth time. Um, so that was really important for me is to have a sort of supporting yeah. learning experience um, and not an academic one. So I've done plenty of school, um, but having to do like tests on computer science, I think would have driven me insane. Um, but so having, having a sort of like interpersonal support was very important for me in that job. Yeah. Do you have, do you know what the stack was like there? Like what they were working with? Yeah, it was a Ruby on Rails application. Um, and it's still up, actually. I think it's uh, CG Scholar is what it's called. Um, and that application, uh, the engineers aren't there anymore, but the application is still going. And so it's a, it's just a, a big Ruby on Rails application. Nice. Um, which, yeah, it, it's beautiful application, and it's uh, the philosophy behind it. It's a writing education tool, um, and it's really cool in the way it's broken down. The uh, person who founded the company, he's a sort of internationally renowned education scholar um, and so the whole thing that they built it's really great application um, which unfortunately didn't quite find its market thus the engineers not being there anymore but uh, was really fun to work on and sort of neat to work on a that was like that's a sort of a an application for the good of the world right um, which mm -hmm. is also a pretty fun thing to be involved in yeah it always helps a lot for sure um, Cool. All right. So then you go from there, uh, and then you go to Two Wave, right? And you get kind of started just becoming your full time kind of career path. Yeah. So um, I've never really done much of my career intentionally, um, which is not really something I would recommend um, for, for those young listeners out there. I there are parts of my career history that I would not really endorse as a good idea, um, but. So I was working uh, at my last job, and I was working um, a lot. It was just there was I was getting really ground down, um, and uh, my dad's company was is was growing pretty fast, and it had gotten to the point where there was enough sort of bureaucratic nonsense that needed to be dealt with, you know, bills and contracts and proposal writing and that sort of stuff that I'm really good at. I actually have a sort of business background, um, and so he poached me to do that. Um, and I always like to, so when people hear that I work for my dad, well, it's actually like my fifth job and it was only by about that point that he was willing to hire me. Um, so it's, it's not really, it's not like a, oh, you need a job kind of situation. Um, he really like, he wanted somebody who could do what I did, which was business stuff. Um, but I ended up sort of expanding, um, my experience at my last job working with, uh, customers or well, they're not customers so much, but you know, working with the, the, the consumers of the product, um, which were kids a lot of the time, but also teachers. Um, I ended up, I got really good at sort of sussing out user requirements. Um, and uh, it gave me a background. I didn't really know that I was accumulating and sort of this sort of like user experience 
development design. So I ended up being really good uh, to everybody's surprise, including, I assure you, my own, uh, at working with uh, our customers at Two Wave to sort of figure out what they need and sketching it out and say like, like well, is it this, right? Do these moving parts, is this what you need? Um, and then handing that to the engineers and the developers. Um, and, you know, I'm, I get better at that all the time. Every time I do a set of wireframes now for the developers, there are less like, oh, what the hell are you talking about, Adrian, moments. Um, but it, it's very, it's been very organic for me, that whole process of coming over to do business and accidentally doing tech. Gotcha. Yeah, it's interesting. It's cool. I find with a lot of people I've interviewed, it's like always one extreme or the other. Like like people that are like, oh, I was nine when I knew this was like software engineering was the thing for me. That was what I wanted to do. Or people that are like either really resistant or it never was, you know, never intentional, never the plan, just kind of got like, uh, you know, organically drawn to it or, you know, whatever it is kind of situation. Yeah. When I was nine, I wanted to be a professional musician. Um, so I, uh, uh, maybe not nine when I, by the time I was 10, I guarantee you, I wanted to be a professional musician. Um, I started playing cello right about then. Um, and that's what I did. I mean, I like, I had no career prospects or applic applicable college skills when I went to school other than music. Um, like I didn't even take math or science my senior year of high school because I was so focused on music. Um, you know, I'm practicing six plus hours a day, right? Um, pardon me. Right. So, I mean, that's, I started when I was nine and I was like a very dedicated, diligent musician with like, that is what I was going to do when I was growing up. Um, now nobody tells you that that is entirely hopeless, um, as a professional musician, uh, which is unfortunate because a lot of people major in music. Um, and, uh, I ended up basically just ruining myself, uh, a combination of, bad cello technique and probably some sort of inherited structural defects but i just completely destroyed the upper right quadrant of my body like uh by the time i finished undergrad i could barely handwrite almost anything um just like my hand had stopped working and my neck and my back were coming along nicely uh and so that just that threw me off the professional music train pretty hard um but like most failed musicians i ended up in arts administration um, which is a whole separate problem that I won't go on in on. But um, so I ended up working for the local symphony here. Um, again, like, oops, right? No, no intentionality there. No, not a moment in my life had I spent preparing to be an arts administrator. I just happened to be a failed musician. Um, so uh, is this a good time to recap all the things that I've been bad at? I, I mean, really... yeah, if you want to. I okay, yeah. No, so this, this, it's so. Right, so I went from being a failed musician to being an arts administrator. Um, just, I grew up, uh, so I went to school at the University of Illinois, um, at least eventually. I started at uh, Columbus State University, which is in the, it's the, the navel of the universe down on the Alabama, or the Alabama, yeah, the Alabama-Georgia border, basically, right? Um, I didn't like it there very much, so I ended up transferring back. So I had a huge network of just contacts in town uh, who managed to get me this job at the symphony um, because they felt bad for me, right? Like, uh, what do you do with a failed musician? Uh, so I was working at the symphony, and I liked it a lot. Uh, the parts that I liked about it, I was the operations manager there. So uh, you can sort of that, this is where I start to get in in the business world. Um, so I was doing a lot of this stuff, you know, paying the bills, paying the musicians, running our mail campaigns. Um, and so there is like... While the professional performing music world is pretty bleak, the arts administration world in some ways is a lot better career path for a lot of people. There are fewer arts administrators in it and there are fewer talented ones. So the thing about music is that there are just, I mean, a staggering, incredibly depressing number of musicians who are better than you, no matter how good you are. I was at one of the, my last summer as a musician, so every summer you go to summer camp, right? My last summer I was at one of the best uh, summer programs that there is, and I was there, and I was just looking around, it's like, these people, like, there are 10-year-olds here who make me look like I'm a 10-year-old, right? And so to go from that to being an arts administrator where the, the job market is actually pretty rich if you're good at it, um, but not for somebody who only had a music degree. You really need to have experience or education. Um, so I'm sort of looking at 
what I liked about my job, which was working with musicians, sort of managing the mechanics of the orchestra, and what I could do for another degree um, that would be at all applicable. And looking around at sort of my options, so like there's an MBA, obviously, but that takes a long time, right? I could go to law school, a bunch of musicians go to law school, like really insane number of musicians go to law school because, you know, they have some sort of applicable skills. Basically, if you can lock yourself in a concrete room for six hours a day for 10 years of your life, you can probably learn the law. Um, but again, forever and very expensive. So I actually ended up settling on human resources um, for a number of reasons, but one of the main ones being that the program at the U of I is short while also being one of the best. It's just three semester master's degree in and out. Um, and so I got in and I got a fellowship, which was great um, because I wasn't sure how I would pay for it otherwise. Um, and I got seduced pretty quickly by the corporate HR uh, mystique that the program, that the program here is focuses pretty heavily on corporate. Um, and it's, it's graduates, uh, you know, like they they start out making, I don't know, like I think now it's the average of an average of $80,000 a year or something, which to a, to a, engineer especially on the west coast is not a lot of money but for hr grads it's just like criminally insane especially considering you're in school for three semesters right and so having grown up with not very much money and having then been a musician which is actually having even less money than when i was just booching off my parents right um that seemed very appealing to me and so i got like pretty into the corporate mindset for about a semester and a half um, and then I started burning out on the corporate mindset really hard. So this thing happens there where you have to, you have, you have to get a summer internship, have to being in quotation marks there. Um, right. That's how you get your next job. That's what you must do. And so they have companies coming in constantly, like every week you can have interviews with companies. I had, uh, 25 or so interviews with companies, which like really spanning up to very large companies like, uh, Boeing and, uh, Honeywell I interviewed with it's like these really like huge companies and the sort of consistent message from all of them was Adrian seems very nice but we have no idea how he would fit in in our company uh, and so I listened honestly uh, and like alright so um, that was like my first really serious taste of rejection um, which really stung the first couple of times but after failing about 25 times, uh, I sort of like either I was going to get really depressed about myself and my abilities, or I was going to accept that uh, if they don't want me, that's probably a sign that I don't belong there, right? Because my my background, I had work experience that was applicable, right? I've got great grades, I studied a lot of school, I but I am not a you know quote unquote normal corporate employee, um, and. I, I'm actually pretty lucky that those companies saw that because I think that I would have been a pretty serious failure had I gone and tried to be in corporate HR work in manufacturing. Um, uh, so like I said, I sort of listened to that. I kept doing interviews. I got no summer internship offers. I got one second round interview with actually with Boeing that didn't lead to an offer. And meanwhile, my friends are all getting like a bunch of them went to work for uh, General Mills, for example. They're all going to these giant companies off for the summer and I've got nothing. Um, and I sort of accepted my fate at that point. Like this was not for me, um, which is hard. It's hard to be like, well, I screwed this one up. Um, <laughs> hey dog. So um, that summer, I registered for some summer school classes, um, just mostly to keep my student loan money flowing. Um, and I ended up actually back in music. I registered for a, uh, a stats class over the summer, and I went and picked up the textbooks, and they were all like programming textbooks, like statistics application programming textbooks, which were not mentioned in the course overview at all. So I dropped that class as fast as I could uh, and managed to get myself into a film music class in the summer. And I was in film music class, like, oh yeah, I really like this, right? Um, like maybe I do wanna do the music thing. Um, and this is, so again, through no real skill of my own except having a good network, um, I happened to, I got some really good contacts. So this is one of these bizarre things. So my great uncle was one of the people who recorded the Gilligan's Island theme song. 
Um, so he knew a lot of people uh, in just in the sort of the music world and also in just like the, you know, we're impressive professionals who are well-networked world. And he hooked me up with a friend of his who was a judge who was on the board of a, I feel bad now. I think it was uh, like the, uh, it was a major, one of the larger orchestras in Iowa. Um, and he hooked me up with um, the dean of uh, the Roosevelt uh, music department, who's this guy named Henry Fogel, who is a really like legendary figure in the classical music world. Um, so we're I think, at three degrees of separation now, but I went up and met him and he was super nice and really provided me a lot of guidance on getting jobs, but he also agreed to be a reference for me, um, which it's roughly equivalent to like having Steve Jobs as a reference, where just his just his name, which I had no right to, right? I just happened to know a guy who knew a guy who knew him and was able to get me a meeting with him. And this guy, I mean, he was he's incredibly kind. Um, and I, I don't personally think that it was through any merit of my own that he decided to be nice to me you know i'm he i i listened well right i was respectful we talked about my goals but i wasn't particularly outstanding um but his name got me uh well it opened a lot of doors for me and so um i ended up so i just barely got a job by the time i finished grad school so i got my i got a job offer uh for uh to go work for what is what bills itself as the nation's premier music festival in school, the Aspen Music Festival, um, which is in Aspen, Colorado. Uh, I got my job offer like a week before graduation, maybe actually less than that. I remember like I had just gotten my job offer when we were at graduation because I was telling people for the first time. So, I mean, I really squeaked in under the wire on that one. Uh, and so I was hired to be the development assistant at Aspen. And so the interesting thing is you're going to think, oh, like software development, actually the other kind of development, fundraising. Um, so that's something I had been involved with at my old job. Um, and I got to Aspen, and I can't tell you how incredibly expensive Aspen is. So our, uh, okay, this is, for those of you on the West Coast, this probably doesn't seem so sure. awful, but so when I got there, the Wall Street Journal had just run an article about how Aspen was the most expensive place in the country to live. And the the cheapest home for sale in Aspen was nine hundred thousand dollars, and it was a trailer. I mean, like an honest to god trailer. Um, so our six hundred square foot apartment, my wife and I and our three cats, um, pardon me, our six hundred square foot apartment was almost a thousand dollars a month. Um, and I was making under forty thousand dollars there, and my wife didn't have a job, so we came in just like. Uh, the feeling of being poor is luckily something I was pretty familiar with, but it, it's hard. It puts a lot of stress, uh, put a lot of stress on my wife and I, and it put a lot of stress on me. Um, and so there's sort of like this, it just felt bad. Um, and so I got to work, I started working and I was there, I'll just skip to the chase. I was there for about 10 weeks before I got myself fired. Um, the, the circumstances of which actually don't particularly matter. Like they were perhaps not all my fault, but, I definitely screwed up some things. Um, I learned some very hard lessons at Aspen um, about being a functional adult, um, which I just wasn't quite ready for uh, when I got there. And uh, it sort of exposed a habitual disrespect for authority that I have, um, where just my boss and I, who's actually really, she's really great at her job, really nice woman. She and I did not really mesh well which is 100% my fault. Like, um, so I got fired. And that was actually, I got fired uh, the day before my birthday. So. That's uh, sad, sad timing. When I read the fours. That's sort of, except that like, when I got fired, I had this sort of overwhelming, like wave of just, ah, uh, yeah. right? Like, okay, okay, like this felt bad. It wasn't working. It's like, there's no way I, I would never quit that job because it was a, a job, right? But, you know, I walked in the door to our apartment and my wife looks at me, she's like, why are you here? I said, do you want to move home? Yes. Um, so it was the day before my birthday. My dad actually flew into town the next day to celebrate my birthday with us. Um, he left, like I got fired on a Thursday. My birthday was Friday. And on Monday we were driving back to Champaign. Uh, 
so whoops like this is this is uh i don't know depending on how you look at it basically like my third failed career um if depending if you count hr as being an actual failure or just an, an aborted launch uh and i'm sort of I'm learning more about myself um which is weird like at 25-ish at this point, right? I, at 25, thought I should be an adult. And now at, at 31, I think, am I an adult yet? <laughs> um, but so we got back to town. And again, I got a job, not really through any merit of my own, except I had connections. So while I'm you know, hitting every single Craigslist and newspaper post for a job that there is, it just happens that a good friend of mine knows somebody at the company that uh, they needed a part-time customer service person. Um, and that's what I got hired for. I got part-time customer service at a academic publishing company, um, which was, you know, the literal any port in a storm. Um, not something I ever considered doing, uh, like really not something I considered doing, but turns out this, I actually was very good at. Um, so it was mostly email customer support and some phone. Uh, and I just am very fast at email. So I was, you know, I just churn through these email issues way faster um, than anybody that had ever hired before. And so uh, I was lucky enough that I sort of accumulated some more responsibility and my boss ended up accumulating too much responsibility to be able to be in control of the customer service department. So I got promoted to running the customer service department and then they added in my software component, which I mentioned before. Um, so I sort of like just accumulated more and more stuff that I was responsible for. Um, I ended up with my own team of people that I had hired and trained. Um, I onshored our customer service team from India back to the US. Um, so I did all these things that actually ended up being really terrific formative career experiences uh, that I had never intended to have. Right, like I said, I, I've done very little in my life with intention. Um, I even, when I started this company, I was even still thinking I'd be in arts administration. And I ended up, I got another arts administration job offer um, to work uh, in Abilene, Texas. And I just I sort of looked at the job that I had and I thought about being an arts administrator again. Like, actually, I'd rather do this. Uh, which, if, if you'd asked me a month before, a week before, right, I, think I would never have actually considered that but i ended up you know it was a really great crowd of people and i was getting all these experiences that i found very fulfilling that i would never have guessed i would find fulfilling you know uh, i actually like talking to people on the phone for customer service which is a bizarre trait but served me really well uh and so that's how i ended up at this academic publisher where like i mentioned before i just got all these technical skills uh sort of by osmosis and just by virtue of being lucky enough that somebody was willing to trust me to do some of those things um, so yeah, I, I mean, I've essentially just been like a, a, a ship adrift on the tides of my own life. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I'm really lucky to have a very tolerant wife on that, that particular <laughs> front, you know, she and I met in music school and so she's done, she's had a sort of similar thing, but man, I dragged her all over the country. It's sort of like juked left and right as to what I was going to be doing professionally. Uh, and she has been, she's been very kind about that. And I've had, you know, very supportive friends, very supportive family just in sort of like helping me become a grown-up, which I don't know. I don't think I really turned into a decent functional adult until I was in my late 20s. Um, it's just a, like a very, very long maturing process for me to the point where I, where I would, in retrospect, even consider hiring myself, right? Um, younger me was a real pain for lots <laughs> of reasons. So, okay, I got a couple, couple of questions. Absolutely. Uh, Looking back on, you know, like different ways that your life could have, you know, changed um, and especially looking back on this life of being a corporate HR person for General Mills or something like that. Do you look back with like a little bit of regret like, oh, that would have been cool. Or do you look back like, oh, thank goodness that didn't work out for me. Um, well, I, you know, like most things in life, it's a bit of both. Um, you know, those sweet corporate HR salaries. <laughs> right. And. There are, there's, there's a lot to be said for that life. Um, and I don't begrudge any of my colleagues from grad school who do that and are very happy in it and are very successful. So, you know, but the people that I went to school with now, they have rapidly climbed the ranks. They are all doing really cool by corporate HR standards stuff, right? Um, but it was not the life for me. A lot of them are getting moved across the country like they did 
rotations every six months. I had a friend of friend of mine who went to Raytheon, which is you know a massive defense contractor, and the first two years of her employment, she had to move every six months. I that if I wasn't you know married or didn't you know mind just getting uprooted every six months, I guess that's reasonable. But it was not the life for me, the corporate HR life. Um, yeah. But I did you know I learned a lot in grad school that. I find remarkably useful at really random times. I mean, employment law has turned out to be really useful a lot, but even stuff like there is a big focus on stats there. Uh, it's really, you know, that's a very important thing for HR people to understand the statistics. And so the, the, the grasp of statistics that I got there has turned out to be useful in occasions where you'd never think, like I applied it to donor databases, to donor retention and donor giving rates in ways that my employers had never seen before. Uh, my, like I said, employment law has been very useful both for myself and for many of my friends who've been in somewhat less than legal arrangements from time to time. You know, I had a friend who, uh, when she was leaving her job, they tried not to give her her vacation payout. I said, well, no, that's not legal. Hey, let's, you know, like I can prove it. Here's the Illinois statute, mm -hmm. right? Um, but not just employment law, but sort of facility with law. Um, so, right, like the ability to read contracts, right, to actually read a contract and understand what it says. Well, that's been really useful since... You know, like when we work with the state, for example, um, the state of Illinois sends us a 40-page contract. Um, well, it's, so it's like the University of Illinois by way of the state of Illinois or the University of Illinois by way of the state of, state of Illinois by way of a community college in southern Illinois um, back to us, right? So that's a contract. That's a program where we had sort of three contracts that we had to deal with. Um, and just my ability to deal with that, I would never have had before I went to grad school. Um, so while corporate HR was not for me, um, like the, the, the skills that I learned there were applicable everywhere. You know, I took yeah. a staff, I took a staffing class there, which has made me way better at hiring employees than anybody who hasn't taken a staffing class. Um, which, you know, that's going to be true for most people, for most things, as long as they let it. Um, and I'll be honest, like the fact that I picked up skills in grad school was, uh, despite my best efforts, in some ways, like I was really burnt out on it, especially in my last semester. I was like, oh, this is just like, I'm not doing this. I really don't like this atmosphere. I don't want to do these things. I'm feeling really depressed. Like I just go to class and phone it in. Um, I wish I hadn't done that. There's a regret for you. Like I should have, if I had worked harder in grad school, I would have been better off um, despite whatever success I happen to have. Um, you know, arts administration, I don't miss at all. I'm, uh, the, the idea of begging for my own paycheck for the rest of my life is sad and the arts world is just collapsing um there will there will still be major orchestras but every year they make less and less money except for the really big ones so that's that's uh i don't i wouldn't say there are really any actual regrets about the path that i've ended up on which i don't think i i don't think i'm even allowed to say chose right um other than making a couple of choices here and there i guess i chose not to take a job in texas um but mostly i have locked into everything I've got, um, which is kind of, it's sort of, sort of weird um, to be like, well, no, I don't know that I deserve any of this, but it's where I am. And it's actually, it's made me really happy. So yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I think that one thing that I hear a lot of is that there's like this certain kind of perspective that um, like unrelated experience or whatever, like, oh, I, you know, I, I wasted time doing X when then I ended up doing Y or whatever. But I think it's like really interesting that, you know, if you're the right kind of person, you stay positive about things, like really no experience is bad experience. Like you learn all this cool stuff and it gives you like, you know, in like, so, you know, there's like this alternate universe, right? Where you, you like knew what you wanted to do, which was this, you know, like 10 years ago. And this is like, you had five jobs doing the same thing and you get really good at, you know, like development and contracts or whatever. But, but then there's this other world where you have like all these unique perspectives and all these unique skills that you can bring that, you know what I mean? That other people can't cause you've had all these, you know, different experiences. I think there's like a lot of value in that. And I think that's like, um, under appreciated a lot of the time, you know, people that come from, totally different worlds, totally different fields can really bring a lot of skills that you just, you know, and maybe as an employer weren't even aware uh, you needed or could be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what happened for me at my previous job is that you know, I ended, I was able to do a whole bunch of stuff that they had no about, no idea about, you know, like I had a master's degree and I was applying for a part-time job. I 
basically had to beg them for it. The only reason I got it, again, is because I had a friend who said, like, no, really, it's not like he's just going to go wander off. Like, he, there is no job market now. He really needs a part-time job. You can hire him. It's safe. Um, yeah. And then I got to apply my skills. Uh, but that's not what I was hired for, right? Um, right? And I am lucky in that regard that I learned a bunch of different things because it sort of lets me be a kind of jack-of-all-trades, right? And so now in my job at 2Wave where I can do, you know, most things, um, at least somewhat successfully, especially once I get, you know, once I get on Google, um, it's, it has really benefited me. But there are times when like, well, if I had spent a little more time throughout my life just learning about computers, right, I'd be a lot more facile with them. It probably would not have cost me much with my other hobbies. Um, but I didn't. And it's, it's worked out okay. You know, I'm never going to be I'm not going to be some super successful front-end engineer uh, or super successful, you know, world-traveling consultant. That's not the life that I've ended up with. Uh, but that's okay. Like, that kind of failure, if it could even be deemed a failure, right? Um, that's compared to all the things that I've actually really, like, screwed up. Um, I think I've, I've ended up in a tremendously lucky place. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool, too, because I think that, you know, for me starting this podcast, a lot of it was, was like, talking about, like, wanting to talk to people in a more, like, humanizing way and talk about rejection and talk about the fact that, you know, we all face it. And, you know, I think you get this, like, perspective based on conference talks and blog posts and things like that, that there's these, like, other people that are, like, wildly successful and never face failure. And, you know what I mean? They're just brilliant. Um, and I'm sure there are people like that, but I think for the for the rest of us, like that blog post or conference talk is just that's us shining. You know, that's like one moment where we're like looking really, really good. But I think like the reality is that the the stuff that we don't talk about is like what it's like being fired or like you know what I mean. What it's like, like how to push through that stuff because we really do all face it, and it's it's really hard to push through. Um, yeah, it's it, it's true. It's it's really hard. Um, so when I was in grad school, I worked in the Career Center. Uh, and having moved back to town, I actually spend some time mentoring now when I can. Um, and uh, given my HR background, and actually I have a website about, I have a website about job hunting, um, which does not get a lot of traffic, but people run into it. And friends of mine send their friends. And so I spend a lot of time coaching either students or friends of mine or mutual friends of mine, right? Just helping them you know, get through the whole process of even finding a job, you know, making a resume that gets parsed correctly by the stupid algorithm that whatever employer is using, right? Making a cover letter that stands out among a sea of worthless cover letters because cover letters have very little predictive value, right? And then actually getting into the interview, right? Where the interview is a, most interviews are a complete farce, right? Most interviews are actually decided in the first couple of minutes and it's almost entirely whether the person who's interviewing you likes you or not. Yep. Um, right. And so having like teaching people all of that and exposing all of the things that aren't what they look like, right? Like, oh, you think you think that you're actually interviewing with somebody, but really you're just auditioning to see if they like you, right? Um, and then helping people prepare for failure, right? Like the odds are that any given interview, you're not going to get this job, right? Uh, you're going to send out 100 applications and you're going to get back you know, if you get back 10 responses, 10 interviews, you're in great shape. Um, and it's something we, we're not very well prepared for, um, is just like not actually getting what you want yep. um, or, or just finding out you're not good enough, um, which that is something I'm very glad for music for. Um, so, you know, your entire life in music is just a string of auditions, right? One audition after the other, uh, audition, audition, audition. And uh, by the way, audition, failure, audition, failure, audition, failure, right? You apply to a bunch of different music schools. You only get into one or two, or you get into a couple and you don't get, like, don't get enough scholarship money. You don't get orchestra jobs. Um, so musicians actually spend a lot of time failing. Um, they don't deal with it very well. So the, the music world is actually sort of emotionally toxic, uh, especially the sort of the medium levels of musicians. You know, they spend a lot of time not doing well and not processing it well. But um, once you've sort of experienced that failure chain enough, uh, you can kind of get wrap your head around it. And like I said, then I then I didn't get twenty five or so jobs for internships. 
Um, but when I talk to people and I'm working with them, it's something I have to tell like, like this is not going to work out. This, this thing that you're trying, probably not going to work out. But every time that you go for it and you fail, you're more likely for the next one, right? You build this whole suite of skills. Interviewing is a, it's a game, right? And you build, you build tricks, right? Like yep. you build interviewing tricks. My, I, I teach people to interview and almost nothing that I teach people is about like how to showcase themselves or something, right? It's just a set of, of things that you do so that, and I hate to say this, but most of the time you are just working to manipulate the person that's interviewing you. Yep. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of interesting research. I think you really hit it where like, I think, I can't remember what the number was, but it was like most people have decided pass or fail on you in the first, I think it was like under a minute, you know, like really like you're, yeah. You know, like, the, so there's an, there's an initial, an initial impression that comes under a minute, right? Mm -hmm. Almost immediately. When, so when you meet somebody, they will look at you and if you look like them, right. Uh, you got this like major this major leg up, right? Uh, you there's a sort of this immediate assessment that like, do you move in the same ways that they do, right? There's a, a whole set of subconscious things that happen that gives you an, an initial assessment, and then yeah, the hiring decision is made. I think I would have to find my notes on it, but it's it's, yeah. like, it's like three to four minutes where most hiring managers have already decided if they're going to hire you or not, and then then you have I don't know, depends on how long the interview is, another twelve minutes, another you know. 57 minutes to try to talk them out of whatever decision they've made. Right. Or if you happen to have been lucky enough to have impressed them in that way, right. To then, you know, don't screw it up. But the majority of the time, you know, you're, you are just trying to make sure that you fit into the, the mental model slot that they have for who they're supposed to be hiring, which has not been exposed to you. Right. Um, which gives people that look like me a big leg up because you know, a white guy meets another white guy and you get this huge affinity, right? And so now you've got this advantage. And so I actually spend a lot of time working with people who are not white men. I will work with any anybody who needs my help, I work with. But the people who I really try to focus on are the people who don't have a sort of built-in leg up on the world. Right. Um, because, you know, the, the sort of, well, it is a game. And so the hoops that each different kind of sort of marginalized group has to jump to is a little different. Um, and that's, sucks i mean it makes me really mad all the time um but it's the truth and i would love to live in a world where what doesn't but the people that i work with i'm instead teaching them like well you know here are a bunch of ways to manipulate the person that you're working with that you're talking to into liking you right, right? like watch how they move and move like them you know look them in the eye lean a little forward take notes right mm -hmm. no yeah i think it's yeah it's it's definitely something that we've talked about a lot on this show. It's like a very unfortunate reality, but it, but it, yeah, it, I mean, it is a lot. There's, you know, being out on the West Coast where it's a huge problem, a huge obvious problem. Um, the only kind of cool things that I've seen, you know, some companies are really pushing forward with it, but uh, during my time at Twitter, we've had a lot of uh, subconscious bias training. Um, which, you know, we still, ha I mean, our numbers are still horrible as far as underrepresented minorities go, but um, it is, you know, it's important and it's cool. It's great to help people that are going out for interviews. Um, I think it's also really important as, you know, if you're a, a owner of a big company and you can swing it to get people, you know, there are experts that you can have come in and help you, you know, on the other side of the table, uh, help you not be contributing to such a bad problem. But right. that's and it's tough. I actually offer that consulting service too. Um, I don't do that one for free, but like uh, since I have an HR background, um, I do offer consulting services about selection, right? Sort of trying to teach people, and it is selection, right? The whole process it starts it starts so far be before the interview that it's like right. comical, right? It starts with your job posting. I mean, it starts with how you take applications, right? If if the people who are selecting interviewees ever see their names, then anybody with a name that isn't quote unquote white. Right. right has just just like a stupid disadvantage you know to the point where when i work with people who don't have a really like statistically normal name i you know i frequently say like well have you considered using initials right and if you know women like almost almost every woman that i work with i suggest like well there is tangible value to not having your name on your resume to using your initials right um and I mean, you start from there and so yeah, companies really underestimate how hard it is to not be bad, right? It's very hard work to not be bad at hiring people. 
Yeah. Um, you know, at every step from screening resumes to actual interviews to technical interviews are an entirely different, pardon me again, an entirely different um, can of worms, which are very hard. And for, for a lot of reasons, it's very hard to do a good technical interview that's predictive. Um, so, you know, like that's, that's a service that I offer. It's hard to get people to buy in, right, to the fact that they might be bad at what they're doing. Right. Um, and so it's good, you know, when a big company, when big companies get sort of, mud slung at them right when 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 they get shamed in public it really has and i'm sorry for the people who get shamed in public on it but it has actually a pretty positive net effect because a lot of the smaller companies you know they see that and it's not all of them or even most of them but they'll see smaller companies will see that and they'll, they'll see like okay well we should be better right yeah. so that's something you know that's a service that i like to provide um coaching people, you know, here are the 25 different ways that you're probably biased against, against or for the people that you're interviewing. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a, it's hard. It's really, really hard. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it is. I think it's really important too. So yeah, that's cool. Um, so I think we're running pretty close on time. We covered a lot of really good stuff. Do you have any um, kind of like last bits of advice people, you know, just starting off their careers right now, or maybe in school, things like that, things that, uh, you would like to like to bestow? Yeah, uh, sure. I, I don't have like a list prepared here. No, no, yeah. But um, so the number one thing that distinguishes uh, successful employees from mediocre employees is Google. I'm, I'm not kidding. The number one skill that you can have as a as a young person going to the workplace is the ability to figure out the problem for yourself. Um, so. And it's been tremendously successful in my life. Like the ability to be like, this seems wrong, and I bet that somebody on the internet has found a better way to do it, right? Um, just doing that, just not having to, well, one, not having to go for help for everything, um, and two, being able to actually present a solution, right? Um, those can make tremendous impacts um, in your professional career, but don't be a pain in the ass about it. Uh, and this is the mistake that I made. Um, I don't think I'm nearly as smart as I did when I was younger, but when I was younger, I was very sure of how smart I was. Um, and I certainly ruffled some feathers that I shouldn't have ruffled by not just shutting up, right? There is a point where even, in, even though you may in fact be smarter than the person that you're talking to, your solution may in fact be better than their solution. Um, it's really important to realize when you should just not either don't fight it at all or surrender. Um, I'm very bad at both of those and I continue to be bad at them as an adult, quote unquote adult. Um, but when I was younger, I was worse and that's certainly got me fired and certainly ruffled many feathers in my life where I wouldn't just be like, okay, I understand this is dumb, but well, don't say that, but you know, internally it's like, this is dumb, but it is not, I can't win this fight. Or even if I won this fight, it would be, you know, detrimental. Um, because point three that I'll make is that office politics are a very real thing. Um, and if you are a person who says, I'm just not going to deal with office politics, I'm not going to deal with that, you know, emotional stuff, you are going to get run out of town so hard. It is, we are no longer in a world where you can be, you know, just somebody who works on their computer. Um, you, you have to be em empathetic with your coworkers. You have to be empathetic with your customers. You have to learn, if you don't have them already, learn the skills to realize what your interactions with people are conveying and to learn to pick up. If you don't, if you haven't learned already what the social cues look like when people are mad at you, right? Or when you're pushing too hard, like start learning them now because emotional intelligence, while being a quote unquote soft skill, it's stupid. Um, right. And so many of these things have not been valued because they've been linked to women and women are historically undervalued, but they are not women's skills. And if you think that they are women's skills, then you are very, very wrong. Um, so you have to, as much as you have any technical skill, you have to have the emotional intelligence to be not only just a good coworker, but also just a good person in the workplace. Um, it's becoming more and more valued and less and less acceptable to be an asshole. Um, if I had to offer just a little bit of advice, it would be those things. Like, I go study your engineering, right? Be a great engineer. But remember that there are sort of like a set of things that have very little to do with what you've learned, but a lot to do with 
who you are and how you approach problems that are going to be much more important for you in whatever you do. Yeah. Oh, cool. I think that's great. I think that's a really good, really good note to end on. Um, cool. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. This was lots of fun. So I look forward to hearing it air so I can be embarrassed at my own voice. But oh, yes, that is a reality I deal with every single week. Yeah, I think uh, actually I really enjoy the show. I've listened to a bunch of episodes now. I think you're really, it's a really cool concept and I'm really glad that you're doing it. So cool. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, awesome. Thanks again. Great. Yeah, thanks. Good to talk to you. Cheers.